All right, good morning to you. This is Mike Smith. We've got an awesome show for you today, including the latest in our downtown crime series. All this week, we've been talking to residents and store owners in the West End and other neighborhoods where street mayhem is on the rise. The break-ins, the vandalism, the assaults, robberies, shoplifting. A lot of shop owners and residents say it's getting worse out there. The Vancouver Police Department responding yesterday. They're saying they will increase street patrols now in the West End and the Granville Business District. More cops on the street and on bikes. Constable Tanya Visentine from the Vancouver Police Department on the show. She's coming up a little later this hour. So we've got all that. We've got lots more for you on the show today, too. But first, we start with rising COVID case counts, the Delta variant continuing to spread, healthcare workers feeling the strain. They're facing mandatory COVID vaccinations now in the healthcare system. Our frontline healthcare workers continue to be the heroes of this pandemic. Let's talk to one of them now, Dr. Kevin McLeod, internal medicine specialist, Lionsgate Hospital. He's uh, treated a lot of very sick COVID patients, and I'm, I'm glad he could take the time for us today. Dr. McLeod, thanks a lot for coming on today. Mike, thanks for having me on. And, and even what you just said there, man, I feel for those small business owners. Eh? Like you put them through a pandemic, you do all this, and now they're, now they're dealing with this. Like it's, um, it's going to be tough running a business these days. It is. It's really difficult. We focused on it all this week, and we'll be talking more about it at the at the bottom of this hour with Constable Tanya Visentine there from from the VPD. But uh, Doctor McLeod, let me ask you about the strain that you guys are under on the front lines of the healthcare system. What is it like uh, right now in our hospitals, and what are you seeing sort of on the on the front lines every single day? Uh, well, a few things. I mean, it's it's exceptionally busy, and it's it's not just busy because of of COVID cases. I mean, that certainly is sort of the icing on top that's making it more challenging. But it's just really busy. Like, there's all these unintended sort of consequences of COVID that we wouldn't necessarily think about. I, I was actually sort of contemplating talking to my wife about it yesterday. You know, I've seen so many people in the last year that have come in with just end-stage liver disease from alcohol abuse. Now, that's not directly related to COVID, but it's indirectly related, right? Like people are drinking more, they're under more stress, you know, so there's there's just so many strains on the system. And and I think we're seeing people just absolutely burnt out. I, I was on our COVID unit the first few days of this week and, and um, you know, talking to the nurses, they're, they're tired. You know, nurses will do overtime shifts, um, you know, sometimes a few in a month. But when you got to do repeated overtime shifts day after day, week after week, like you're you're just completely burnt out. Um, and they're honestly, they're doing their best. Like I, I got to give kudos to the health authority and, and dicks. I mean, they really are trying their best. Um, but it, it has a, it's a staffing crunch. It's just a volume crunch. And, and then really, we still have this 600 plus thousand group of British Columbians that aren't vaccinated and and they're really the ones coming into hospital they're, they're yeah. certainly the ones plugging up ICU beds and they're they're the ones that are that are requiring hospitalization and then all that convalescent care like when you look at those numbers for ICU cases it's not like somebody comes into the ICU and they're there for three days and they go home they might be there for two weeks and then they're in hospital another three to four weeks because they've been stuck on a ventilator for weeks. They've lost all their muscle mass. They can't walk. I mean, it's a very protracted hospital course. Yeah. What's it like when you've got unvaccinated people that are taking up those beds and have you been forced to cancel other procedures or other other people who need that bed are forced to wait or go somewhere else? 
Yeah, I mean, there's definitely there's a delay in in um, in care for patients. Um, emergency rooms are overloaded. People are spending more time in there. I mean, they've they've really done their best to try to minimize the impact on on people who are not coming in with COVID. But you know, it spills over, and you you see those stories every day, right? I mean, you you look at the more extreme example of Alberta. I mean, they're they're pulling pediatric intensivist nurses and physicians to the bigger, you know, adult hospitals because they don't, you know, they're desperately trying to make more capacity for these unvaccinated COVID cases. Well, that, you know, I saw a report this morning that 75% of pediatric surgeries in Alberta are going to be put on hold. I mean, that, that's a huge impact to those families and, and that care. Um, so, yeah, there, there is an element of triage that is happening. Okay, you've uh, you tweeted this week that uh, BC nurses are 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 exhausted. You're talking to nurses in the hospital this week, and they're doing their their flat out best, but they're really really tired. What can you say about what do you think about the uh, the position that the BC Nurses Union has taken here, opposed to mandatory vaccination for for their uh, members? Well, you know, Mike, I didn't I. I I get myself into trouble if I'm controversial, so I won't say anything controversial, but it's a completely stupid move on their part. Um, you know, it, it honestly makes absolutely no sense. I, I do see the side that, you know, people do have choice as to what goes into their body, but you're, you're talking about somebody who's in a healthcare setting, who's in close contact with very high-risk patients, you know, who, who still can get COVID if they've been vaccinated. Um, and, and then we're working side by side with, with, with people who are refusing to get vaccinated. So it, it, it's really, really problematic. I don't see, except for the very few rare exceptions, any real medical reason not to get vaccinated. You know, if you think about, and, and people have heard this so many times, how this vaccine works, but COVID is an RNA virus. So RNA is like the, you know, the Lego manual of how to make the, you know, the Millennium Vulcan, right? And, and that little bit of RNA gets into you and it makes these Millennium Vulcans in your bloodstream, you know, or the virus particles. And, and then you have this really significant immune reaction to that virus. And that immune reaction fills your lungs with fluid. It shuts your organs down. It gets you into big trouble. And, and here we give you just like 20% of the Lego manual. We give you just a little bit of it and we train your immune system. Yeah, you're going to have an immune reaction to it. Is the vaccine perfect? No. I think we've got to be upfront with people what, about that, but it's highly effective. What do, you, what do you say to, like the nurses union is saying, okay, if you force all the nurses to get vaccinated or you, you fire the ones who are unvaccinated, even if it's a small percentage of nurses, you're going to cause the, the health system to crash. Are you buying that? I don't buy that at all. I mean, I think you 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 have a very small number of of people who are not wanting to get vaccinated. Um, it's it's very very small, and you know when you when you're working side by side with colleagues who are refusing to get vaccinated and putting other people at risk, that's demoralizing for the 98% who have been vaccinated. Right? It yeah. it, it really sort of impacts them as well. And, you know, it's, it's, hard to, it's hard to see how, I, I just don't buy the nurse, nursing union position. And I'm not sure, like when you talk to nurses, I, and I can't speak for them, they got to speak out themselves. But, they, yeah. you know, I'm not sure they're going to buy into their nursing union position. Hey, Kevin, when, when a COVID patient comes in and they're unvaccinated, what, 
well, how are they feeling? I mean, do, do any of them sort of seem regretful that they didn't take the, the vaccine? Um, yeah, yes and no. I mean, I mean, some do, you know, that they, they usually will have some excuse saying, you know, I was going to get it done. I didn't get around to it. And, you know, we, we don't go into a lot of detail with that. I mean, really, yeah. our goal is to provide the best care to everybody, irrespective right. of, of vaccination status. So, you know, I, I don't want to harp on it. I mean, I, I think, you know, they're lying in a bed on a breathing machine or a bunch of oxygen. I, you guys, I you guys don't judge, right? Them are regretting it. So. You guys, you guys don't judge. I mean, you were there to to help people who are seriously, no, seriously we're ill. Judging. We're not. Yeah. Now, now the caveat to that, Mike, is you know you you feel it on the inside, right? Because you're yeah. you're burnt out, and you you know you've admitted just yet another person who decided not to get vaccinated. I mean, you know, we're all human, right? I mean, we're I'm not I'm not going to provide any lesser care to that person. I'm going to provide right. the absolute best care I can. But you know, you kind of feel it on the inside, like man, oh man, like you're you're screwing somebody else's care up because you made this choice not to get vaccinated when the vaccine is so much safer than than getting COVID. Okay, Dr. McLeod, you guys are the heroes in this pandemic. Thank you for everything you're doing to keep people safe, and I really am grateful to you for your time today. Stay safe out there, and thanks for everything you're doing. Thank you, guys. You stay safe, too. All right, welcome back. Let's keep talking to the heroes of the pandemic here, our frontline healthcare workers. And you heard my conversation there with Dr. Kevin McLeod. He's a big supporter of mandatory vaccination for all healthcare workers. That was announced this week. But the BC Nurses Union does not see it that way. They're opposed to mandatory vaccination for their members. Not all nurses agree with the union on this, including my next guest, Josanne Dubow, who is a Vancouver nurse. And I'm very grateful for her coming on. Josanne, thank you for doing this. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. Okay, thank you for being here. Let me, let me ask your thoughts about the union's position here, your union's position. When you first heard that the BC Nurses Union had come out opposed to mandatory vaccination for unions, what went through your mind? Well, it felt like a slap in the face, especially on uh, backing the protests outside the hospital. It didn't feel supportive, and they certainly didn't, I believe, voice the opinion of 98% of their members. It felt they want to talk about not being coercive. Well, then they should look at a democratic process, and they should have pulled us before they made such an inflammatory statement. Yeah, did they do any consultation with, with their members? I mean, did you hear from your union rep or anything about how you feel about it? No, I'm very active in reading the uh, media posts and their surveys, and this was not, we were not polled about this. Yeah, what do you think about the nurses' argument that uh, if if the government was to fire the minority of nurses who don't want to get vaccinated, that the health care system would crash? Are you? Do you believe that? Well, that's 2% or less of the population. So, yes, it could cause a, you know, situation in a certain area. But we have to take a bigger picture here. Their own, our own website says that 35% of nurses are thinking about removing themselves from uh, the profession because of the stressors of the pandemic. And the stressors right. of the pandemic right. are caused by the unvaccinated and then the measures we have to take to protect ourselves and the people we serve. Well, I think that's an awesome point. And it seems to me that one of the primary duties of, of any union is to look out for the health and safety of their own members. 
And when you've got a union like the BCNU who's saying they're opposed to mandatory vaccination, does that not jeopardize the safety of their own members if you're forced to work alongside unvaccinated co-workers? Well, yes, and they're citing using being vigorous uh, about PPE. Well, their own website statement on PPE, quote, PPE is the least effective measure to minimize the risk of workplace injury. Quote, repeated donning and doffing of PPE combined with extended wear over long hours has a negative impact on nurses' workload and their well-being. We're exhausted. And I see nurses, and we used to police each other, we're exhausted and it takes a high level of mindfulness. We touch our faces, we scratch our faces. We're, you know, PPE is not, and neither is rapid testing. That's not 100% effective. And we work in environments where we can't manage the three C's of contagion, which is crowded, confined, and close contact. I'm speaking to Josanne Dubow, a registered nurse in Vancouver. She does not agree with the nurses' union, uh, speaking out against uh, mandatory vaccination for nurses. Josanne, let me play a clip here for you from the vice president of the union on uh, speaking to our own Jill Bennett earlier this week. And this is Amon Graywall, the uh, vice president of the BCNU, on why making the argument of why nurses should be able to choose not to take the vaccine. Have a listen, then I'll get your thoughts. It's a human right to make your own choice. Uh, We still stand by that uh, everyone should be vaccinated. And we strongly encourage everyone to get educated and uh, get the vaccine. But there will be some that don't. What we've been hearing is... um, from these educated people that uh, they just don't have enough science for their personal choice. Okay, so she's saying that some nurses are not buying or trusting the science of the vaccine and they should have the choice, a human right, and a, to choose not to take the vaccine. What do you think of that coming from your own union? Well, she should not have spoken for less than 2% of the population because some nurses aren't being vaccinated because they have allergies to this vaccine components and because they've had a first vaccine and they had a severe reaction and there's a plan in place those staff will be reviewed by a panel so there's a plan in place for that the other minority that are citing there's not enough science well our uh, Canadian Federation of Nurses say we need to move forward with um, evidence-based science and it is there and it's there for those nurses who have a duty to be educated it's right. there. Josanne, it takes a lot of guts to speak out the way you're doing it. You mentioned off the top that you've been speaking to some of your other fellow nurses. Do a lot of them feel the same way as you do about the, the position the union's taken here? Well, I mean, I went on the Facebook website. There's not a mass, you know, mass bunch of um, replies, but there was an important comment from a nurse saying, you know, they've undermined the public's trust because if the public hears that, hey, if nurses don't trust the vaccine, why would I? Yeah. They fueled the fire of anti-vaxxers who have posted those protests outside the hospitals had healthcare workers in them. And now look, the BCNU supports them. It was a dangerous move. It lacked judgment. They could have done this in a more diplomatic and quiet way to support that very small minority who are not using critical thinking, who are not using science. And frankly, this is like a war. We need to take risks. As health providers, we've always taken risks for the people we serve. 
We work long okay. shifts. We work nights. Yeah, and we expose ourselves to risk. It's what you go. We didn't go into healthcare to look after healthy people. Look Josanne, people. thank you for your time. I congratulate you for speaking up. It takes courage to do to speak out the way you're doing. Thank you for coming on today. Well, thank you for hearing me. All right, welcome back to the show. Let's go back to our focus this week on crime in the city of Vancouver, the break-ins, the vandalism, the assaults, robberies, nonstop shoplifting, uh, general mayhem we're seeing on the streets of some neighborhoods. It's been amazing on the show this week to hear from the residents and the store owners and some of these impacted neighborhoods like the West End who say that just everything has changed where they live and work, that the streets are more dangerous, the crime is more brazen, and it's as, as bad as they've ever seen it. Have a listen to this. This is John Boychuk, the owner of Davy Village Tanning on Davy Street, talking about how his store has been vandalized and broken into over and over again. Have a listen. It's one thing to have your window smashed once, twice, three times. I've had my windows broken four times in the last nine months, and one was out of a mental health issue. But the other were for theft. And in that theft, sure, it was a couple of grand the first time, you know, five grand the second time. Uh, where do we make up these losses? And then for the replacement of the glass, the insurance companies are like, okay, you hit once, great. Hit twice, hmm. three times, not insurable. Okay, John Boychuk there, owner of Davy Village Tanning. We've heard lots of stories like this all this week on this show. The Vancouver Police Department responding now. They issued a statement yesterday. There will be stepped-up police patrols in some of these impacted neighborhoods. Let's talk about that now with my guest, Constable Tanya Vizentine, spokesperson for the Vancouver Police Department. Constable, thank you for coming on this morning. Hi, Mike. Thank you for having me. Okay, what do you think when you hear these stories, and I know you've heard a lot of them from shop owners uh, like John who have talked about their stores being targeted and broken into just repeatedly. How does it, What goes through your mind when you hear that? Well, I definitely can empathize with them. I, I know how uh, frustrating that is, especially um, to be the owner of a shopkeeper. So we've definitely heard loud and clear from business owners, uh, residents, um, you know, the, the mom and dads at the parks, they, they don't feel safe in their neighborhood and they don't feel safe um, from all this rising crime. So we as a police, we definitely share those concerns and we're definitely sub- uh, committed to, you know, suppressing crime and restoring the sense of safety in that community. Something we also know is that many of these criminals um, or many of these crimes that are committed are done by a small number of career criminals. So that's our target. We want to make life uncomfortable for them. We are by no means here to target those facing any homelessness, addiction, mental illness in the downtown core. So we want to assure the community that those vulnerable people will not be the focus of our attention. And it's these, um, you know, career criminals out there. How do you define that, a career criminal? So there, there's people out there, there are repeat offenders. They are those that are, are constantly doing the vandalisms, the shoplifting, the graffiti, breaking the windows, stealing the, the patio furniture like we've heard about. So there are those people out there, those criminals that uh, are repeat offenders and um, our, our uh, community-focused yeah. um, initiative that we're doing right now is really to target them. Right, and we hear often about this sort of revolving door justice system and people who will commit these type of property crimes over and over again and they might get arrested but then they're just back on the street a short time later and just continue to commit offense after offense. What can you do as, as police officers? Uh, you, you say you want to make their, their life more uh, uncomfortable. How will you do that? 
So, I, I mean, as the police, we're, like I said, we're definitely hearing from, from the uh, mom and pop shops, the, the families in the community. And so um, our goal is to take that information, reallocate our resources and really pay that extra attention to right now the downtown core, mainly the Granville Street and the West End, and to really, uh, you know, be more of a presence in that community and, and right. really try to prevent any of these crimes before they happen. So you will be deploying, what, what precisely will the VPD be doing? There'll be more patrols on the street? Right. So what we're doing is we're redistributing police officers who already work in the downtown and ask downtown area and asking them to spend more time in those high crime areas. So right. they'll be doing more patrols, whether that be on foot, on bikes, in, in their cars. And the aim is to deter crime and respond faster when those crimes occur. We also have our neighborhood policing team that will also play a big role by working with shopkeepers and, and staff and to come up with ways to, to deter crime. So there's a lot going on behind the scenes. We also have all our investigations going on, projects going on that we can't talk too much about now. But um, we're definitely, um, you know, really all hands on deck here. Speaking to Constable Tanya Vizantine, Vancouver Police Department, there's a lot of frustration from homeowners that have been victimized by these type of crimes over and over again. And a lot of them have sympathy for the police, but just feel maybe the police are under-resourced. Let me play this here for you, Constable, and get your thoughts on the other side of it here. This is Julio Sachi, owner of Sachi Jewelry on Granville Street, and explaining why they don't even bother calling the police anymore for shoplifting. Have a listen here. Last Christmas. I had I had them come from from the VPD. They came and they gave us a sheet that if if we did have a shoplifting, rather than call nine one one, just go online, fill it up, and they'll get back to us within the forty eight oh. hours. Oh. I, mean, I mean, how can you deal with that? What's the uh. point of even doing that? You oh know? man! And police is doing the best they can because yeah. you know they're doing their job. It's the city that is not doing their job. Okay, so you heard him say there he feels the police are doing the best they can, but they may be under-resourced. Is that accurate, what he, what he said there, Constable, that if there's a shoplifting incident, they don't, they've been told by police don't call 911 but go online and fill out a form instead? Is that correct? So, Mike, I definitely can tell you that we are stretched thin here right now, right across the city with the VPD. So, um, I mean, just to give you, paint the picture a little bit, on average, we respond to about 700 calls a day. Um, that's 700 people calling police to report either a crime in progress or, or, or an issue going on. And those are things like domestics, weapon calls, sex assaults, not to mention all the protests that we have. So, you know, we are we are stretched thin, but, you know, it, it doesn't mean that we are not here to respond. And we're always wanting uh, people to call police immediately, because if we don't, um, if people don't call police, then we can't investigate, we can't respond appropriately, and we can't track down where these crimes are going. So, well, um, I, I also wonder if if you don't call, uh, that means the crime goes unreported. And maybe we're getting a, a false picture of how bad the situation is. I mean, there may be a lot of unreported crime going on out there. 100% right. We know yeah, that yeah. Uh, most crimes are underreported, especially crimes against um, um, a person. Um, just not too long ago, a few days ago, we had an incident. It was a, it was a great witness. She saw um, a man walking uh, by a very high-end store on Thurlow Street who had... Um, uh, was carrying a weapon. Essentially, what he ended up, she watched him break into a store. Um, we were able to get there, arrest him, and he ended up having um, a gun, some knives, bear spray on him. So the fact that she called police, um, we were able to get uh, this guy into custody, um, you know, arrest him for his assault, or sorry, for his crime, and then take all these weapons off the street. So we need people to call us um, 
And especially yeah. if something, you know, I always say, like, if your gut tells you that something isn't right, it's probably not right and you need to call police. Okay, we've been talking to store owners all this week on this topic. Let me play another one here for you and get your thoughts. So this is Azra Kamrudin, the owner of Abyssa Optical on Davie Street. There's another store that's been targeted over and over again with a ton of break-ins and shoplifting. And here he is talking about uh, their frustrations there. When we asked the, the, the police, they, they're, they're aware of it. Um, and we don't even call the police anymore. Um, and so they happened to be by while this was going on and would come in, in the store and say that you should call it in. But, yeah. you know, um, what's the point? Because nothing's ever been done. Um, in all the time that I've been there, not one person has actually been caught um, in all the break-ins that they've had. Okay, Azra Kamrudin there, owner of Abyssa Optical on Davie Street. So, you know, you heard him say there, Constable, yeah, the police have said, look, call it in, don't ignore it, call it in. But then you hear his frustration that he says the crimes go unsolved. But your thoughts? Yeah, so, I mean, it's it's definitely disheartening to hear that, you know, to hear all these shop owners, um, you know, with their frustration. I mean, we know, like, how many years it takes to to succeed in a business and then it could all just be taken away from you in an instant. And it's, it's uh, my heart goes out to them, but despite all that, we, we still need people to call police. We are out there. Um, like I said, we are, are out there. We want people to call us. Um, you know, it's, it's just um, something they have to do so we can respond. Would, would you say that, I mean, often when we discuss these issues, I'll hear arguments on the other side is saying, oh, you know, you're exaggerating this. The crime rate is actually going down. It's not as bad as you make it out. But when you talk to the people who are living with this stuff every day, it's obviously a very different picture. Like, would you say crime is increasing in some of these, in some of these particular neighborhoods like the West End, like the Granville District? It's going up. Definitely. So um, definitely lower level crimes have have dropped and in certain neighborhoods, but we've definitely seen a spike in more of the serious crimes, the serious violent assaults, the serious weapon calls. Um, just to give you a number here, we had glass smash mischief. So that's people, you know, breaking glass to a business um, that has gone up 100 percent from last year, from last summer, wow. and then 500 percent from the summer in 2019. So um you know, crime, lower level crimes might be going down, but the more serious crimes, the serious ones that we are trying to target with uh, this initiative, those have definitely uh, increased. And, you know, the reasons for that, uh, there's a combination of things. Um, you know, we know that uh, a different demographic has moved into the downtown core that wasn't there before. And we find that, um, you know, this demographic is clashing with um, the residents, with the, the mom and dads, the shop owners, etc. So, you know, there are an increase of shelters, uh, one in particular, the Lugat Hotel, we've had over a thousand calls for service to that location. So that's um, wow. a thousand people calling police for a two-man unit, two-man or woman unit to go to this call. So that's taking, um, you know, resources off the road um, to spend time at these calls. So when I say we're stretched thin, that's just to, to, to paint the picture. There's a lot going on in the city, and we need to give um, 100% to each call that we go to. Okay, I know you guys are doing the best you can. I'm glad that they're stepping up the patrols in some of these troubled neighborhoods that we've been focusing on in the show this week. Constable Visentine, thank you for coming on today. I appreciate it. Thank you for having me, Mike, and thanks for uh, shedding some light on this um, oh. really important issue. All right, welcome back to the show. Talking about crime in the city of Vancouver on the rise in some neighborhoods. A lot of shop owners are fed up. They're asking for help. You heard my conversation there with the uh, Vancouver Police Department. Let's go to your phone calls. Steve in Vancouver. Hi, Steve. 
Hey, Mike, uh, it's just, it's horrible how the city is evolving. It's just terrible. I feel bad for the shop owners, but as a resident and a taxpayer, my fear now is we've got limited police resources. They're going to be reallocated, rightfully so, to help these folks now, but it's going to expose other areas of the city to the similar issue. So my question is, we, we just talked about defunding six months ago because the police were the problem. Now people are saying, my God, we need the police. It's incredible. These, these police resources are strained as they are. And as much as other health care providers are being strained through COVID, I'm wondering, what's the breaking point for some of these police resources? I mean, we need to stop encouraging people to move to Vancouver, homeless people, to set up encampments. We need to deal with it. And we have zero leadership in the city. And that is the problem. We have no Th- thank leadership. You. Thank you for the call. Well, it was the leadership of the city that's been putting the, putting the boots to the police budget and uh, forcing them to shut down uh, programs like the the neighborhood response program that they had. They put in a neighborhood response team that was doing an awesome job. And if you want these extra cops and boots on the ground, you need to pay for it. Let's go to Blake in the West End. Hey, Blake. Oh, my goodness me. I met Comox in Cardero and Wellich. And this week, my neighbor goes outside to get in his, his Range Rover. It's stolen. Mm-hmm. And the camera's show these guys going one vehicle to another trying door handles and that the neighbor on the other side with a big steel wall protecting gate three bikes stolen it's getting so bad you you can't even put a a planter out on your porch it disappears hanging baskets disappear i mean it's it's out of control put christmas lights up guys guess what they're stolen Oh, man. Blake, thank you for the call. I'm hearing that a lot from residents in that neighborhood. Yeah, if it's not nailed down, they'll take it. Dave in Vancouver. Hi, Dave. Oh, hey, Mike. Thanks for covering this. Yeah, I, uh, I'm 50 years old. About two years ago, I started doing Uber Eats on an electric bike. A lot of the trips would take me downtown and into Chinatown, Main Street, commercial. I, my bike got stolen from Expo Boulevard in broad daylight doing a trip. Um, I just can't do it anymore. Even I got back on, I got a new one. I tried it again, but every time I got called into the downtown core, I would refuse the trip because I couldn't leave my bike anywhere. I, I was threatened. I was assaulted. These guys are hanging around. With, but it's like they run, it's like they own the neighborhood. They have such an entitlement. It was really frustrating. There's bike wow. shop, bike chop shops everywhere in my neighborhood, which is near the Lowe's on Grandview. I mean, there's one guy in particular who's lived there, and he's got three motorhomes and a whole bicycle chop shop operation going on. It's been years, and the city refuses to do anything about it. He's moved, but one block. Now he's on the east side of the Lowe's on Grandview. And from what I've heard from police officers is that the mayor and the council just won't do anything about it. They say it's homelessness and addiction, but yeah. there's a certain demographic of these people that just take advantage of that, and they hey. feel they run, the, they run the city. Hey, Dave, I'm sorry for your trouble, man. I, I know an electric bicycle is expensive. How much was that bike worth? I got it in 2019, and it was a 2018 model. It was worth $2,000, but yeah. it's more about the 250 bucks I was making a week trying to yeah. you know survive in the city to be honest that i just can't do it anymore and i used to have fun doing it it was fun for a while but then i had to balance you know my safety uh by going downtown and you know i'm a big guy i can handle myself but i just said some nights i got home and i was like no not worth it okay that's brutal dave thank you for sharing that story victor in richmond we got a minute left go ahead yeah there's one viewpoint i haven't heard is uh from an addict 18 months ago, told me that he'd never seen so much money down 
on the east side because everyone was getting served. Everyone was getting so high and so addicted. At that time, he said, there'll be a crime wave when this money stops that no one will ever know. I've never heard that other than from that addict. Okay, thank you for that. No, it's an interesting perspective. We did talk about that on the show, and yeah, well, the CERB is no longer there. Some of these other programs are told are going to run out. Kevin in Vancouver, 30 seconds. you got to go quick. Yeah, you know what? Tons of property crime. I've had all my stuff stolen, tools, left, right, and center multiple times, and this is, I want to add a different perspective. Customers, they're paying for this. You go to Starbucks, your coffee's more. Everything is more expensive because of this for the end user. We need more police on the street. Trust me. All right, welcome back to the show. And we've got a fantastic remainder of the program uh, coming up for you. A couple of quick programming notes for you. At the top of this hour, we'll talk about the Coyote Cull in Stanley Park. We saw a vigil in the park this week by people who said, don't, don't kill those coyotes, leave them alone. Uh, despite 50 attacks on humans this year in the park, the, now the Un- BC Union of Indian Chiefs weighing in on this one. It's one of the largest indigenous rights groups in the province, and they are now criticizing the coyote call despite all those attacks on people in the park uh, this year. That's coming up in the final hour of the show. Also, have you seen the new Netflix documentary on the painter Bob Ross? You know Bob Ross, the guy with the electric hair? You know, beloved painter? And a fantastic new documentary on Netflix I recommend to you to check out. Really cool. I watched it the other night. We'll talk about that coming up in the last hour of the show, too. Okay, so we got all that coming up for you. But right now, let's talk about uh, the eviction rate in Vancouver. Did you know that the highest eviction rate in the country for tenants being evicted from their properties is, guess where? You got it. Vancouver. Let's discuss now with my guest, Robert Patterson. Robert is a lawyer with the Tenants Resource and Advisory Center. And I'm very pleased to welcome him. Robert, thanks a lot for coming on. Thanks for having me, Mike. Okay, this is a very interesting report. It sounds like it's the first of its kind that's ever done a national study on eviction rates. And what did we find out here? Vancouver's got the highest eviction rate in the country. Is that right? Uh, yes. So I, I, yeah. Vancouver and British Columbia, our eviction rate is, I think, a little bit over 10%. I, I think the way that the study looked at that was looking at asking tenants if they had been evicted in the last five years. Uh, that rate is almost double what it is in Ontario, um, which I think comes wow. third. I think it might be PEI or one of the Maritimes that is slightly higher than them. But we are notably above everybody else. Um, and you know, I think it's great that somebody has finally sat down and gathered this data because one of the biggest problems, you know, in trying to address this situation with sort of the eviction crisis has been a lack of data. So it's good that we have the data and now we have to do something about it. Okay. Why is that happening? Why does Vancouver and British Columbia have such a high eviction rate? Is it like connected to the pandemic in some way? So this study data actually comes from 2018. So prior to the pandemic, I think there's, um, a couple different factors that make it so that BC and Vancouver have the highest eviction rate. I think number one is the way our eviction process works. So in in most other jurisdictions, if a landlord wants to evict a tenant, the landlord is the one who has to apply to court or the municipal court or to whatever decision maker it is to try and evict the tenant. They have to be the one to begin the legal process. In British Columbia, we're one of the rare jurisdictions where instead of the landlord beginning the process like that, they start the process by just giving the tenant an eviction notice. And then the tenant has a very brief window of time to decide whether they want to 
uh, appeal the notice. And if they do, they have to be the ones to pay the money to start the legal proceeding to try and defend their housing. So it immediately puts tenants on the back foot. Um, wow. So I think I think that that nature of the process inevitably means that tenants will you know have to miss will sometimes miss their their deadlines to file to dispute their notices deadlines that are very very strict and have almost no wiggle wiggle room um it also means that some tenants might decide it's not worth fighting it or i think we've i've seen cases like this over the past few years landlords because it doesn't cost them anything to issue an eviction notice they'll just say well i want to get this tenant out i'm just going to keep issuing eviction notices whether they challenge them or not eventually they're going to get tired of them or you know not be able to afford to make to file to dispute them uh and then decide to move out uh so I think that's that's one big piece of it, uh, and I think obviously another big piece of it is the you know there's a great incentive for landlords to end tenancies um, because they want to increase more rent. I, I think this is more like the unscrupulous again sort of this a landlord that might abuse the process unscrupulously. Um, the way that our rent control increase works, our rent increase control works in British Columbia, is that we only control rent going up for the same tenant. So if I live in a house for 10 years, over that 10 years, the increase is capped at whatever the legislation says. Uh, and this year was just announced for next for next year, the increase will be 1.5%. But if I move out or if I'm evicted and the landlord brings somebody else in, they can send their rent to whatever they want. So that effectively creates this incentive for landlords to want to ter- end older tenancies. And the older the, blo- the older the tenancy, the longer the tenancy, um, the more vulnerable the tenant really, the better because there's a greater increase that can be had. So I think that also led to you know the the mass rent evictions that we saw uh, in Vancouver and throughout the Lower Mainland, where landlords would buy an older building, you know, filled with uh, tenants who've been there for a long time, and then renovict to, to get them all out, and then try and fill it with uh, new right. higher market-paying rentals. Right, and a, and a renoviction is where the landlord can legally evict you if they're doing uh, a major renovation on a on a suite or building. Correct. Yeah, so the, yeah. the 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 old rule was that it had to be um, uh, the renovations had to be extensive enough that the, la- the only way to get vacant possession was to uh, that the ten- tenancy had to end. Um, right. But that was getting really abused because for tenants, right, you get that four month notice that says the landlord's doing renovations, and it might give you some indication of what the renovations are. You don't really have any way of knowing. Uh, are these renovations, unless unless you're a contractor, you have no way of knowing, do these renovations actually require me to be vacant, require me to to vacate the unit? Like, does it need an empty unit to happen? So a lot of people were put in very difficult situations. And even when when they disputed them, um, you know, arbitrators didn't always, uh, who had to make those decisions at the residential tenancy branch, didn't always have the expertise to be able to say themselves whether or not that required vacant possession or not. I think one great thing that's happened uh, just this summer is the government has changed the process for rent evictions. So now landlords have to be, have to apply at the residential tenancy branch and make, uh, meet an initial sort of threshold in order to be able to evict the tenant. And then if a tenant, a hearing is still held, and if a tenant is unsuccessful, they still get a full four months after that hearing, um, as opposed to the usual, you know, as short as 48 hours for other kinds of eviction notices. Right. So I think that's that kind of approach is a really great way to ensure that, you know, tenants aren't being hit with frivolous eviction notices, uh, and, and to ensure as well that, um, yeah, that we're, I think that will, if you saw that approach across the board, across different kinds of notices to end tenancy, requiring the landlord to get the ball rolling in court, you'd see, uh, I think, a, a more equitable eviction rate. Okay. Did the government not ban evictions during the pandemic? Is that still in place? 
So there were uh, there was a period for the first three months of COVID. So I believe from March to July of 20, 2020 uh, that all evictions were banned except for or urgent evictions or early end evictions. Then um, for uh, July and August uh, notices of and tenancy for non-payment were still banned. As of September last year, all evictions were back on the table with some special rules for people who had accrued rent arrears over the, over the eviction ban period. Um, what we've seen since then, however, is that the, the sort of the waiting time at the RTB for hearings has gone up and up and up and up. Um, and while we uh, can't peer behind the curtain and see exactly what's going on, just from anecdotally from the tenants who contact us and sort of <laughs> talk about the issues they're facing. I think a lot of the reason for that high load of uh, uh, hearings is people contesting eviction. So uh, I don't think we've seen, uh, while there may have been a temporary pause in evictions, what that may have led to is a massive buildup that is now still um, you know, jamming up the residential tenancy branch. Okay, that's very interesting. Speaking to Robert Patterson, Tenants Resource and Advisory Center, what are the legal... Um, uh, what's the legal ability for a landlord to evict a tenant? Like we've already talked about the the renovation scenario, where if you're doing a major mm-hmm. renovation, you can evict someone. What are the other legal bases for ev- evicting a tenant? Like you can evict a tenant if they're if they're damaging the property or breaking the law in, the, in a suite, right? Uh, yes, there's actually there's quite a suite of tools landlords have to end a tenancy. So um, I'll go from from shortest period to longest period. So the shortest uh, turnaround time for ending a tenancy is a 10 day notice for non-payment. That's if a tenant is has not paid their rent. Uh, once a tenant receives that notice, they have five days only to either pay the amount demanded uh, or to dispute the notice if they think the amount demanded you know, isn't actually owed to the landlord. Um, and stepping up from that, there's a one month notice. The one month notice is a notice for cause, and it captures a lot of different specific grounds to end tenancy. Uh, what the what the courts have said about a one month notice and about the mean the purpose of a one month notice is to they can terminate a tenancy. A landlord can terminate a tenancy for effectively serious misconduct, uh, something that's a serious misconduct that has seriously affected the tenancy. Um, sure. So I think you know a lot of cases when you see yeah when tenants are causing ex- there's a there's a, a grounds for uh, significant or extreme damage to the property that the landlord can evict for, um, and uh, I think. At the same time, some of the wording in the in uh, the section for the one month notice also seems to imply that the more uh, uh, I guess smaller issues can still be evicted, evictable for, uh, and that has led to some uh, mis- some misuse of the one month notice just in terms of things okay. that uh, okay. we've seen. Let, um, let me let me ask you this just before you go yeah. through the rest of the list, because the reason I ask is that I often hear from landlords like the the guy on the other side of the equation of this and saying well the 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 landlord tenancy laws in british columbia are tilted in favor of the tenant that it's very difficult to evict a tenant uh, even if i wanted to is i i'm sure you you think otherwise i mean you're a tenant's advocate what do you think of that argument because i hear this all the time from landlords that it's difficult to get rid of a tenant if if we want to for sure i mean i think that um, from my experience of the residential tenancy branch, I think that sometimes landlords who don't get legal representation don't fully appreciate that when they begin the eviction process and the tenant challenges it, the legal burden of proof is on the landlord. So landlords will sometimes think that they can show up at hearings and simply testify to certain facts when they don't actually have the evidence to support those facts. So I think part of it is just a legal preparedness, knowing what the situation is like, knowing the, the process properly. And because many landlords will go through it in a self-represented way, and tenants do too, but um, they end up at a disadvantage because the burden is on them. 
to prove the facts in order to end the tenancy. Um, I think on the flip side, one thing, though, that definitely affects landlords and tenants' experience in the residential tenancy branch is that there is a, a strong problem with consistent decision-making at the residential tenancy branch. Um, hmm. So across the different sort of many arbitrators you can get, they have high levels of discretion in terms of how they interpret and apply the law and find facts. Um, and, you know, there are definitely times when I've come out of hearings and thought, I have no idea what just happened or how that, you know, <laughs> or you get a decision, you're like, I have no idea how an arbitrator could have come to this particular conclusion. So, you know, oftentimes I am gobsmacked to see sort of what the system produces. Um, okay. So consistency is a problem, but I think as well in terms of, you know, general claims about unfairness, there there is often, I think, a failure to understand that a landlord is the one that bears the burden. They have to have their ducks in a row uh, and can't expect to sort of show up and talk their way through the process. Robert, thanks for coming on to talk about this today. Appreciate it. It's my pleasure.